0: Welcome back, loyal listeners. This is T. Cole Newton coming to you pre-recorded from my bar in Mid City, 12 Mile Limit. As ever, my co-host here. Mr.
1: Steve Yamada. Welcome back, everybody. It's great to see you. We can't really see you because you're not here, but uh, we see I the numbers. I can see you. That's scary. That is very frightening. <laughs> but uh, uh, we can see that a lot of people have been downloading uh, the episodes recently. Uh, we're definitely beating the expectations that we had. So thank you so much as always for listening. Um, wanting to hear some feedback from y'all. So if you've taken the time to listen to some of our past episodes, please, please, please reach out to us. Let us know what you want to hear. Uh, let us know how we're doing unless you think we suck and then, you know, just don't
0: just don't do that. We don't we don't need to hear that kind of feedback. Also, let us know if you want to come uh come hop on the show sometime. We'd uh, we'd love to have you. So we we do have a, a special guest with us today. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself?
2: Uh, I'm not that special, Cole, but
0: uh, <laughs> uh, Brian Diaz.
1: Thank you for having me. Uh, happy to have you. All right. Well, um so as always, uh, this is another good opportunity for us here at uh, Round with Stephen Cole. Um, stepping outside of just strictly a uh, bar conversation, this isn't completely far away from this because uh, I think this is one of those Venn diagrams where we're hitting a bit of a you know that middle swath between the two circles of like this is kind of bar and not bar for the most part. So we invited Brian to come on. He has a fantastic radio show and podcast. He actually serves as a big inspiration for us getting into podcasting. Me and Cole have been on his show several times. Um, and yeah, so let's, uh, let's go ahead and introduce Brian. Why don't you start off and just tell us a little bit about, a little bit about yourself? Oh, thanks,
2: guys. And thanks again for, uh, having me here. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, originally from California. I grew up in the uh, San Francisco area, actually the Oakland area. I like to be a little bit more, cra- I'm an East Bay kid, not a San Francisco kid. Uh, and I've been in New Orleans for about nine years now, I think. And uh, married a local girl that I've known since uh, probably about 1980 or so, a local artist here in town. But second marriage, uh, that's how we got together. And um, yeah, I've been doing the show, the NOLA Drink Show, as you mentioned, on uh, 990 AM here in town and in the podcast uh, for about, I think about eight months. Uh, and I've been working in radio kind of in part for about two years, uh, started out doing this stuff, filling in for my good friend and your friend, I think, uh, Tim McNally mm-hmm. on his show. And so Tim is sort of my mentor through all this.
1: Yeah. Actually, uh, the first time me and Cole were on the radio, we, we had two opportunities and I think we mentioned it before we were on a Tim McNally show, not with Tim, but with uh, a friend of ours, uh, Brian York. Uh, yeah.
2: Brian's a good guy. Yeah. Yep. So,
1: so what is the uh, appeal right now? What was the uh, desire and the draw to uh, have a podcast and, and to be on the radio here in New Orleans? That's a great question, Steve. Um,
2: you know, I think, thinking back on it, it sort of happened organically in that, uh, really, I, I got to know Tim. And Tim travels a lot doing what he does, judging wine competitions and that sort of thing. And so Tim asked me uh, on a lark about two and a half years ago when he was going to judge the uh, San Francisco Chronicle Wine Competition, Uh, if I wanted to fill in for him on the show for a few days and I said, well, that sounds like a hoot. Why not? You know, (laughs) uh, and I I like to talk. I like to drink. Seems to be (laughs) what that's all about. Uh, so yeah, I did that and, and kind of kept going down that road and basically became his regular guest host whenever he took off. And then, uh, through his good graces was offered my own show last uh, August, I guess it was. And I guess, you know what? I wanted to do something you know, somewhat similar to what Tim does, but I, you know, also quite a bit different. I wanted to be a talk show. Uh, I wanted to be a bit more issue based, mm-hmm. not necessarily all the time, but, uh, you know, I think like you guys are saying with your podcast, there's a lot of people that do good things out there talking about how to make drinks and bartending things. Uh, and like that, I wanted to do something that was a little bit longer format with interviews, get into some social issues, talk about things. Uh, that aren't just top ten list type stuff. That's done well enough by other people.
1: Right on. Uh, so we we've definitely had uh, our experiences. First off, like with a uh, you know the pitfalls and struggles with starting a podcast. So in uh, starting with your radio show and your podcast, what were some of your initial experiences, and what are some of the uh, challenges you had to overcome? To uh, you know, eight months. I, I feel like we're doing okay, but we've only been hosting this podcast for almost two months now so Mm at the eight month mark i'd be interested to see you know are we still plugging away that we are can we still have weekly episodes uh so so tell me what it was like for you starting off
2: if you're asking me if i know what i'm doing after eight months i'll say no steve (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah you know it, it was challenging to i think what helped me actually is filling in for tim uh then i was not really responsible for a podcast and my own kind of brand and own process. So that allowed me to, I think, kind of hone some of the radio skill, how to manage the format, how to manage having to take commercial breaks at certain times, knowing when commercial breaks can float, these sorts of just radio stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and getting that under my belt. And then it was um, really just kind of a learning process of doing some research on how to set up a podcast, how to host, how to look for reach, mm-hmm. um, how to get the podcast on the particular services that were desirable out there, how to integrate it with the website, blah, blah, blah. And so kind of through process of elimination of what I decided I needed, what I could manage, what I understood – What I was willing to understand, that's also, I think, a big thing. And it kind of went from there.
1: There's internet magic, right? There's sometimes we're just like, okay, I don't know what an RSS feed is, but if I just plug it into iTunes, then they'll host me for free, right? Exactly.
2: I don't need to go down that rabbit hole. Just paste here. Sounds fine. Don't know the technical
1: issues. (laughs) How about you, Cole? How do you feel about, like, our first couple months podcasting?
0: Well, I think we, for our debut episode, we expected, or we set a goal of 25 downloads. And for our debut episode, we got, a, what, 80? Something like that? We're at 88 at this point, I think. For that for that first episode. Mm-hmm. And we still have a few people kind of trickle in who listen to the more recent episodes and then go back and sort of fill in. I I think we've been doing very well. I do think that, me personally, I feel more confident now in my ability to have a meaningful conversation in the context of this format. I think I listened back or I think back. I actually haven't gone back and listened to any of the early episodes since I listened to them the first time. And I think that some of them were a bit superficial in our conversations. We weren't able to do the real meaningful, have the real meaningful conversations that I was hoping we were going to be able to have. But I think in the last, the last few episodes, especially, we've really been able to get, uh, some, some important conversations. I think the last week's episode with Neil, was was at least for me was very eye opening. I thought it got to some very emotional, very real places from someone who's sort of notoriously very, uh, I don't want to say non emotional, but has a very professional air about mm-hmm. him and has this this aura of I don't want to say invincibility, but he has a status in the bar industry here that he's he's gotten that by being sort of very emotionally even keeled and sort of distant. And I can relate to that myself. I, I think I've, people sort of assume that about me too—that I'm sort of emotionally distant. I don't have a lot of highs and lows. In, uh, but being able to have that conversation with Neil, and the conversation the week before when we talked about real estate, being able to have real, meaningful conversations—I think—is becoming easier the longer we've been doing it. And I think it's just—you know—it anything you get better the more you do. It, yeah. it, it takes practice, and I think we're. The show's getting better, people. Let's keep listening. <laughs> we hope
1: so. So, you know,
0: hundred hundred
1: listeners this time around. Uh, I, I'm personally happy with um, the length of it, and one of the things that's really great, and one of the challenges that you know I'm impressed that you can do. Brian and that uh, I, I realized from other podcasters who do this professionally and then radio hosts as well is when you have segments that you know you have to record like eight minutes and then you know there's going to be commercials in between and just having those cuts and knowing how to dictate a conversation to know that like it has to end organically at a certain period of time. I think that's very difficult and that's one of the freedoms that we have on our show is we don't have any sponsors. We don't have to worry about anything <laughs> so uh, we can just let it go. As ever,
0: this show is brought to you by Kirko.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Where's the check? neil (laughs) um but uh, the first couple episodes we were we kept our eye on the clock a lot and we were thinking like you know we want to make sure that this episode is less than 30 minutes because nobody's going to listen to us if we go longer than 30 minutes but what i see that we're finding out is um, we really get into a conversation when we're kind of hit about a 15 to 20 minute mark mm-hmm. and then like it starts really getting good. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think we, we're blessed with that aspect that we don't have to really worry about formatting too strictly. Mm-hmm. Um, so Brian, you brought up a pretty good point, um, about, uh, you had kind of the natural social abilities to be on the radio and to be able to talk about different topics and things like that. Uh, where do you think you got a lot of those skills being able to communicate and, you know, carry and lead conversations?
2: Uh, wow, Steve, another good question. Um, you know, I'm sparing you the long story of of my background. Uh, I worked in, well, way back when I actually used to teach public speaking in high school and some things like that and did theater and that sort of thing. So, uh, a lot of student council type stuff. So makes you develop an ability to sort of speak and think on your feet. Uh, Mm i sometimes stumble quite often. But, you know, I think it starts there. Uh, and then I, I mentioned to you guys right before we started recording, um, I worked in the nonprofit sector for about 10 years, specifically environmental stuff, uh, and have a, a master's degree in international environmental policy, actually. And so I did coral reef work and marine protected area work in the developing world for the better part of that decade. And that taught me a lot about – so we were doing a lot of, uh, say, conflict resolution and facilitation stuff with uh folks in developing countries with their natural resources, their marine protected area, their reefs, fisheries, so on and so forth. And that taught me a lot in that I'm not only dealing with people and trying to, say, facilitate a conflict or planning meetings or resource conservation conversations, but doing that across cultural lines, Uh I think, taught me a huge amount about um realizing oftentimes in situations – uh, what what you don't know, which is the vast majority of the situation, is the most important thing to remember. Mm-hmm. And so going into a lot of these conversations, uh, say, on the show, and we're talking about issues that I may be familiar with from an academic standpoint or from a journalistic standpoint. Uh, I don't know from that person's viewpoint And that's not my place. My place is to facilitate the conversation so that it comes across clearly. These ideas come out. The person can express themselves and we get to the heart of the topic if we can. All while trying to keep people perhaps from swearing and some other things and (laughs) and keeping the segments, you know, every time Mark Scheller
1: shows on, you (laughs) just have your hand on the, on the bleep. Yeah. We got this on the
2: radio show. We got the seven second bleep button. If (laughs) if I pre-record stuff and somebody drops an F-bomb for the podcast, it stays, but uh, the FCC doesn't like that on the uh, AM band. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I would talk a little bit about I, I think our, our professional trajectories kind of mirror each other to a certain extent because I was originally my, my academic background's in history, but I thought I was going to be a teacher, and so I did some did some educational work and then I moved down to New Orleans to do a year with AmeriCorps and was doing full time volunteer work and was looking for work in the nonprofit sector and then wound up as a bartender and then several years later as a bar owner. And part of me feels like I am neglecting the important work uh and that that this whole bar owner basically just throwing a party every night everyone have a good time is is not it feels inconsequential in a way and i feel a little bit uh, guilty about that but also simultaneously being a a business owner has offered me and having a, a venue where people can host events has offered me the opportunity to in ways do more good in the nonprofit world. We host nonprofit event fundraisers here all the time. We do a lot of civic engagement. People watch political debates here. Um, and also being a business owner, <laughs> upstanding member of the community with air quotes, uh, I'm, I sit on several nonprofit boards now as well, which is not something I would necessarily have been able to do if I'd actually gained employment like I wanted in the nonprofit world. And so sort of following my career path just in the way that seemed organic, but follow it like doing the things that I'm good at has allowed me to do the things that I find meaningful in a way. And I wonder, like, I think the fact that your podcast, it's about drinks and partying and having a good time in new Orleans, but it's also much more issue based. And I wonder if that, if you found that trajectory, if you found yourself in a similar place in that trajectory.
2: Yeah, Cole, excuse me. I, I definitely, to answer your question directly. Um, when I finished working in, in non-profits, and actually like you, I, uh, one of my two undergraduate, uh, majors were, were history and I was going to be a history prof. There
0: you go. So, uh,
2: and then that went look out look the window. Us now. Look at now. <laughs> exactly. <Gosh. laughs> Sitting here 12 mile in before the bar of college opens. like me guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know, and I, I, this will sound, uh, some people will maybe not relate to this so much, but when I was doing this coral reef stuff and, I had a really wonderful opportunity to go see some really interesting places. I did work in Papua New Guinea, went there four or five times. You know, I was in remote parts of Indonesia. I was in Fiji, did a lot of stuff in the Caribbean, these sorts of things, and really cool places and cool people. Um, but when I was gone, you know, by this time I was in my mid-30s or so, I would be gone sometimes three, four, five weeks in one trip, and a lot of it was, again, in very remote areas. Now, granted, the accommodations that I typically had weren't. I wasn't like I was laying in the mud, although that did happen occasionally. (laughs) Uh, and it, it got, it just, it got old in a sense. I got tired of being on the road 35, 40% of the time. Mm -hmm. And when I came back, um, I decided I was sort of looking around. I didn't want to do the nonprofit thing anymore for a host of, of different reasons, including that one. And uh, I had always, I'd grown up around wine. And uh, making, again, a very long story short, I, I got into the wine business, and when I started doing that, uh, to your point, Cole, you know, I was wor- running a couple tasting rooms, and I started doing some consulting. And when I started doing some consulting, I started consulting for uh, Lake County, uh, which is the county just north of Napa uh, in the North Coast region of California, and I started doing education. And we started doing work on sustainability in the vineyard, um, worker development and rights stuff, so a lot of the itinerant. Typically Hispanic uh, workers, pickers out there doing educational programs, career advancement opportunities, these sorts of things, and it kind of it, it made me realize that having that component that came from that nonprofit background, doing that kind of work had a strong educational component to it as well, uh, which is also part of my background. You know, and I, I started teaching uh, wine education classes, which is obviously not a social issue per se, but I always liked education. And keeping that social issue concept, uh, at the fore, it, at least as something sort of like you were talking about, Cole, it's something I, I know that I'm good at. I did it professionally for a long time. And I started to kind of think about with the radio show and stuff, how do I not let that go? And, and again, too, it just seemed to me that out there, there was already stuff about where to go eat, where to go drink. And certainly we talk about that stuff to a degree, but I wanted to make sure that there, the, I didn't see a lot out there of shows that tackled social issues issues of race, issues of gender identity, these sorts of things in the service industry, in the liquor industry, food industry, everything. And and it just, it's near and dear to me and it feels right when I do that as opposed to just saying, here's the 10 best taco joints in New Orleans. Right.
1: We, we, we've, uh, expressed our disdain for listicles indeed which is funny because <laughs> many t- times definitely two of the ep- two of the seven uh, it will be eight episodes two of the eight episodes we've done so far on this show have been list based but i i, I don't know maybe they're parodies of list i'm not 100 percent sure it's just it is easy to do it's the popcorn of like you know presenting media like you know or talking or whatever or just trying to express your ideas It's the easiest way to get ideas across i guess but that being like you know uh, a primary way of like reporting. And as far as journalism goes, I think it's just complete garbage. I mean, it's just watering down like, you know, information and making it easily digestible for people so they don't have to think about. Absolutely. Things. It's just, it's, I, yeah, I couldn't agree yeah. more.
0: It's hard to really convey much relevant information about anything in 150 words. You right. know? So if you're writing a list of 10 things, and you're you're, you've got Five hundred total words to play with because that's the nature of the beast then you, you can't no, the, nothing is going to be essentially meaningful the, the the inclusion on the list is sort of the metric for that that success there, but I also think that it's not there's nothing inherent there's nothing inherently wrong with listicles you know that that it, it there's value there it helps the places that get mentioned get a little bit more attention it sort of lowers the barrier to entry for for food and, and other types of, of journalism. But the fact that it's becoming sort of the, the dominant paradigm, that that's what people, that's what people are defaulting to. That's both, that's what people are asking for. That's what people are reading and responding to. Maybe it's just because it's easy. You know, it's a lot easier to digest a paragraph about a place than to read an in-depth, protracted analysis of that same
1: location yeah there's uh we were talking about this on your show last week brian but i mean the two major points that really stick out to me that uh, are my arguments against listicles being just this primary journalism form is one it's damaging to journalists and journalistic integrity uh, in a time when people are still paying like what 25 cents or less a word to journalists it's just like you know I understand the fact that you just want to put out something fast because you know you're not really getting paid for it. Or there's people who uh, are looking for exposure, so they're undercutting real journalists and they're putting out things like listicles and uh, undercutting that market. That's It's horribly damaging to, you know, somebody who's going to sit there and write, like, you know, an in-depth article talking about uh, a good subject. And then the other thing I think is really uh, damaging that listicles do is it, it ruins uh, – real travel and you know we're talking about this is just that you know people now when they go to different places when they travel uh they have these lists in hand and i don't think that's a true sense of traveling like you know getting a sense for a place meeting people talking to them getting real desk uh real recommendations to go to places when you just have a list that is um that is telling you exactly what to do, you're just checking boxes off that list. You're saying, I have to do this, 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 and this. It's like the best times I ever have traveling is when, you know, I go off the grid and I just, you know, have a legitimate experience and get a real taste for a city. And that's what I really like to do. I don't, think that I have to do things. One of my things now is, um, when I would go to new cities, I always felt compelled that I had to go see a lot of the bartenders I'd met at different conferences and different competitions and go to this bar and that bar and this bar. But you know, the last couple trips I took, um, big trips I took, like the last time I was in Chicago, uh, everybody was like, you know, Oh, well we have to go do all of the bars in Chicago. And I was like, you know what, I think I'm going to go to Delilah's and I'm going to Sportsman and then I'm going to go to my friend's bar and just hang out and catch Mm -hmm. up because I haven't seen these people in a year. And like, I just don't need to do that. I don't need to run around. That's not going to be a relaxing or, you know, informative time for me.
2: You know, you guys, I I agree with everything you said. And I think they're damaging in in all the ways you said. I think that one of the things in in traveling or or visiting a city, even one in which you live, we were talking about this on when you were on Steve last week on my show. That uh, a lot of the way that I think information is transmitted in, in New Orleans, in particular, but in many places, is I think I use the the analogy shoulder to shoulder in a bar. Mm-hmm. And when uh, having you know traveled quite a bit abroad and lived abroad and backpacked and some stuff like that, I found out about the, you know the best things that I found out about most of the time or quite often anyway were not what was listed in my Lonely Planet book which is sort of a listicle by thing by nature, and, and, and it has to be, okay? I mean, it's hard to be a compendium of $10 a night hotels in some city in Guatemala without listing the few that they can go visit. I get that. But then you get there and you talk to people, you talk to locals, you talk to fellow travelers, and you find out something that's not in Lonely Planet or it's not given top billing in Lonely Planet or whatever you're talking about. And and that's how you find things. And I, I think also, too, um, you know, Cole, I think you were touching on this as well, that – The exclusionary aspect of listicles, I think, are a problem uh, in that people who aren't on the list, you know, you're not going to go check those 10 off or you do go check those 10 off. You're not going to go see some of these other ones. And I think sometimes what makes the list or gets these places on the list is what's new, what's hot, what's changed. And one of my viewpoints, which I probably said to you both before, is, you know, what's wrong with just, you know, like making a solid cocktail the same way for 10 years and cooking my steak to order when I order a medium rare and I get it medium rare? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the Cons- consistency. consistency is
0: more important than novelty.
2: Absolutely, man. And, yeah. and, and, and that I think listicles kind of blows that too. And I, lastly on that, too, for me, on your point, Cole, um, it's a tool. And like anything, if you're using it too much or not, or using it improperly, it's a problem. And I think it's just become so overwhelming that, that it's now a problem. Right.
0: For, for me, as, as a business person whose business has been, I would say routinely, but, fairly consistently mentioned on these types of lists on in you know, thrillist and your other what are the, the buzzfeed the heat, heat map heat essential maps, new orleans all these things that we <laughs> we're, it's not rare for us to wind up on these lists and even something as as big as the times picayunes annual list of top 10 bars in the city the fact that we've been included there all of this has been very good for our business mm-hmm. and i i mean so i i don't know I, have only seen the good things that come of it and personally. I haven't, because I haven't been excluded from those lists, they've been, I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah. For, at least in, not all for it. Cause again, it, it, it's, it's reductive and it's exclusionary and subjective. Subjective. And there's a lot of it that's not necessarily great, but it's been pretty good for me.
1: Well, the graft <laughs> is the worst as well. I mean, there's some pretty oh, big man. perpetrators as well as those, some of those lists are just like, I will include. A, your restaurant if you give me a free meal i will include your hotel if you give me a night stay at your hotel and like that is the only way to get onto some of these lists and it's just it's it's crazy that there that i feel that should be a huge and that should be a very obvious i think ethics issue but it's just very commonplace in the industry nowadays and you've got people who are like very firm like Legitim- I'm going to say, I will say legitimate journalists who who ver- very much frown upon that. You know, Todd Price, for one, I mean, he he does not want you to send food out for him. He wants a legitimate experience in your restaurant. I think uh, one of the last restaurants I worked at, uh, you know, he was a little bit frustrated that, you know, somebody sent him out like a little moose bouche or something like that because that's not what he's looking for, you know. And that's what I think most journalists who were serious about, you know, reporting about the hospitality industry – um, they, they don't want that. They want the real experience. They want to report what's actually going to happen because it looks bad to them when they are talking about an experience and then people go to that place based on what they're writing about and they don't get the same experience.
0: Mm-hmm. It's difficult though because there's a, there's a level of, I'm just talking about food writers who Try to maintain an air of anonymity. Mm -hmm. But that has, that becomes a double edged sword because a lot of the more well established institutions will recognize who the food writers are and the ones that are newer to the game, the ones that are just less experienced in that world won't. So the most recent, I think the New York Times, the newest New York Times food critic, and this was a couple years ago, so there might be newer ones since then, but came out, put a picture of himself Next to an editorial that he wrote and said, "Hello, I am the New York Times food critic." Oh. You, that because it was otherwise, it was unfair that people like I know what Brett Anderson looks like, but not everyone does. So if he comes into my bar, and he has not not for a while, so to my knowledge, but he's he's been in here before. Um, I kicked it, him out the other night. He <laughs> <good. and> <laughs> um, But but I know it. I know it when I see him. So and I try not to treat him any differently because I don't think that's what he's looking for when he's here, or that what he's looking for anywhere. But. Just that knowledge gives me a leg up. So being able, like, you, you, you're always going to treat those people differently, even if it's only subconsciously. It makes it hard to be objective. I, I, I gotta gotta imagine that, that real legitimate food criticism is very difficult because everyone wants to make sure that your experience isn't necessarily exactly what every other guest is going to get. They want, make sure that maybe that it's not They, they don't want to give something, give an experience that's not representative, but they want, like, this is our best look on our best day. You know, that kind of experience. Yeah.
2: You know, that, that's, those are good points, Colin. I think a problem in New Orleans, in a sense, is, uh, it's a small town. You know, it's a small, big town, as we know. And it's hard not to know people that run in these very small circles because they are very small circles. And certainly occasionally I'll meet somebody that works, say, in the service industry or something, owns a restaurant. That it's almost seeming, and I, that I don't know. And it's almost seemingly mathematical, mathematically impossible <laughs> that I don't know that person yet. Because everybody's one degree of separation. Yeah. You know?
0: we, well, you didn't meet till the, for the first time you until what, about four good months example. ago. Yeah. And I had been in
2: here on numerous occasions, but when, when you weren't here. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, that's, it's kind of a weird one that way. And, and, you know, and the other thing on the criticism thing too, that, um, I used to do, I did a Sauvignon Blanc project, which, uh, was, a federal grant project through the state of California, and it was promoting uh, California Sauvignon Blanc. We did this for about three years, had an organization behind it that we created and stuff, and we did Sauvignon Blanc reviews. One of the things that I decided editorially was, we are not going to publish a negative review because it becomes so subjective in these sorts of things. So the idea was, um, and we didn't want to shill per se, but the idea was that it sort of what your mama said, you know, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say it at all. And so if we got a bad Sauvignon Blanc and I asked my writers to do this, and a lot of them already did this that were professional wine critics, if they got a wine they didn't like, they just did not write a review. Mm-hmm. So the idea was endorsing something that they did objectively and journalistically like, and we shared that. So here's where to go find the good stuff, uh, and we stand behind that. There's no graph. There's none of this going on. But if it was bad, then we just don't talk about it because it it does become subjective and problematic. And I kind of do like that approach. Mm -hmm. I get talking about when places have problems and steering people away. I'm not denying the value of criticism and being a critic. But it, you have to be really careful with it, and right. maintaining that integrity is really tough.
1: Well, it seems like some people, uh, some professional critics at this point, are getting uh, a lot of notoriety for their extremely bad reviews. I mean, yes. um, up at the yep. New York Times was it Pete Wells? I'm not, I'm not super okay. familiar, but I know he, um, whomever the critic is up there, like you know, got a lot, got you know, gets a lot of attention for when he does something like goes into Guy Fieri's restaurant and tears it apart, or he recently went into uh, Thomas Heller's restaurant and like you know, said that it just isn't, a, it's not as good as it is, and my my friend threw down her napkin and, like, you know, rage about how clean the service was and all this other stuff, and um, I, I think there's a lot of examples right now, like, and I, I'm guilty of this, too, is, like, you know, when there's something that I, I kind of want to hate on, like, did a whole episode about hating on things, uh, and there's a negative review, it just kind of justifies and, like, you know, makes me feel vindicated when it's like, oh, yeah, 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 professionally, somebody says, somebody who's a professional judge <laughs> of these things agrees with me. I remember uh, years and years ago, uh, the band Jet. Their second album came out and uh, Pitchfork Media, which I used to follow. Um, <laughs> I was an aspiring hipster. I used to follow like <laughs> all the time. Uh, their review was just a uh, a picture of a monkey peeing in its mouth. That was the entire review for the album. Interesting. So, yeah, okay. zero stars. And I was like, I, was, <laughs> I thought it was the funniest thing of all time. And like now I look back as an older, wiser person, I'm just like, that kind of sucks. You know, it's like these. This is a band. I mean, they're they're putting together music. I may not like it or something like that. But just to do something like that, like the power that a critic holds is just, you know, it's it's to to get like a cheap laugh out of something instead of actually like taking the time to critique it and give like a fair look at something. Right. That is, a uh, that is a little bit lost. I
0: do think there's a difference between, say, the same food critic writing a, a trashing a, let's say the, the restaurant that got such a bad review in, in the bottom of Trump Tower or going into a TGI Fridays as a professional food critic and saying, like, oh, this place is so gauche or whatever. Th- those are a bit. Those are more like headhunting. Like, that's just low-hanging fruit. There's, Mm -hmm. there's almost, it's, it's more of a, that's a bit of an editorial, it's more of a humor piece, I think, at that point. But I do think that there is some value in sort of, uh, taking on these giants. So going to a restaurant, like, per se, that has such a well-established reputation as, as the best restaurant and the best food city in the world, and saying, no, we, we need to take a hard look at this. Is this actually what we all have sort of culturally agreed that it is. I don't think every bad review is useless or it doesn't have value. I think some of them just seem cruel and unnecessary, but some of them, is like, maybe we should reevaluate our opinions of these institutions over time.
2: I think that's really fair, Cole. And, you know, I think that the sort of i don't know sensationalistic negativity that's out there sort of you know the Gordon Ramsay type phenomena of what mm-hmm. we we're talking about with you know so much of that is are, is staged to begin with so it's it's made up problems or they oh, they you know overemphasize the problems and things like that to create this drama and so-called reality TV. And I do think with a lot of negative reviews, sort of what we're talking about here, it's negative for negative sake as opposed to what I think you guys are saying is constructive criticism, which I think can be really, really important if that's your business. But I think in certain situations, like in, in my case, I'm not a food or drink critic per se. I will rail against certain trends and things that I don't particularly care for without naming names. Uh, Because I don't feel that it's, I'm not, I'm not the, you know, 990 a.m. or NOLA drinks food critic. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do have opinions. I do have views. I share those. But I don't need to point out a particular institution and I tend to find I'll give props where props are needed. Uh, and I, I just feel this is my role. And in, in the situation when something negative happens, I observe bad customer service or poor execution. Uh, I don't, I, I choose to not mention the place by name, but I will use it as an example of how things I think, how things should not be done or could be done better. That's as far as I want to go with it because I'm not a critic.
1: Yeah. I mean, on the record, like, I never feel like I need to go onto Facebook and, and say, like, you know, oh, I had the worst experience ever at this one restaurant I went to. But I also am very self-aware of the kind of the, the power that I wield as a bartender. Like, what you're talking about, like, that shoulder-to-shoulder thing in a in a bar, I've always said that New Orleans doesn't have concierges. New Orleans has bartenders. People go straight to their nearest bar when they get to town, yeah. and they ask their bartender where to go. Uh, so it's a, it's a lot of – you get a lot of merit as a bartender. Like, when somebody starts saying, like, oh, I have to go here, I have to go here, I have to go here, and, like, you know, I'll never say that place sucks, but, like, um... You know, there's a very popular institution downtown that people like to go to for lunch or breakfast. And it's just been featured on all these things. And, like, for years, I'm just like, that's not the best place to go. You should probably go here if you want to get breakfast or you go here, you know, steering people, trying to steer people the right way. Because people, tourists especially, come into town. Like, if they've only got a couple days in town, you want them to have the best time possible because then they're going to tell their friends they're going to come down here. They're going to come back. You know, they're going to come back to your bar to tell you that that recommendation that you made, like, really helped make their trips that much more special that's what people are going to remember
2: you know if I I can add to to your point Steve um, it just just happened very recently and happens from time to time and my wife and I live over on the North Shore we went out to a particular place on the North Shore and we're not impressed And, uh, and kind of irritated actually. And, uh, part of me immediately was like, wanted to be that guy. Okay. I'm going to go give them one star on Yelp and say why, or I'm going to go do something on Facebook and say why. And, and I went actually in a weird sort of way, I feel like that might compromise my journalistic integrity Mm -hmm. with the show. If I were to do that, because given the circumstances, I was irritated at the moment. Uh, I'm not a critic. So I don't want to come across as sort of casting stones just in this particular instance and not in others. And it was probably somewhat full of hubris to a degree too because I was sitting there thinking kind of this little bit of attitude. It's like, you know, you've pissed off the wrong guy in your establishment. Well, who am I really in the grand scheme of <laughs> right. things, you know? And so it's it, – I just – and that's why I won't I – won't, I'm not going to touch that stuff. I'm not going to post something on Yelp. Negative and or Facebook negative. I just think for all of those reasons, and again in a weird sort of way, because of the type of show that I do, I think it would compromise the integrity of what I'm trying to do.
0: Whenever I see a a a friend post something on social media or on in a really public platform. That's very negative about a place, and makes it clear what that place is. Whether or not they mention it by name, if they mention enough relevant details, that it's obvious what they're talking about. (laughs) Which is like you're not you're not as sly as you think you are. Maybe you are. Maybe you're exactly as sly as you're trying to be in this situation. (laughs) But I always, it, it always reminds me the the adage that whatever words you use to describe an a person or an institution, a restaurant, whatever whatever words you use people hear those words from you and will associate those words with you. Mm -hmm. So if you say, if you just are say, Oh, this was terrible. I had a bad experience. Then people see that you are saying the words terrible and bad, and they will think of those words in association with you. So it's like, like, like you said, if you if you don't have anything nice to say about a place, just don't say anything. Don't go back to that place if somebody asks you directly about how your experience was. Feel free to be honest with them. Exactly. But like going out of your way to be negative, people will just see you as negative, and yeah. that's that's. And I look at like, for me, when I, I mean, I, I am I frequently hire people, and I shy away from hiring people who have a history of negative social media posts. Like, I just don't, I just don't trust that mindset. And I think it speaks kind of I don't know, here I am talking speaking very negatively about people who speak negatively. So maybe I'm being a hypocrite <laughs> here in that case. But I yeah, that if I've if I've seen people just like do that kind of thing on Facebook and there's not a kind of person I want to hire. I don't I don't necessarily trust that person to be level-headed generally.
1: I don't think that's negative at all. I think that's just that's that's empirical when it comes down to it. Just like you need somebody like hospitality is being able to be positive, to be friendly, to be open and inviting. So, I mean, it's like, you just don't want to have somebody who's like, like, I feel social media should just be, the very much the superficial first impression you get of a person, right? So if like your n- initial impression is like this is a negative person, it's like it probably doesn't go much further than that. I mean, it's not like there's a sweetheart there who's going to like you know take care of all your regulars and foster your business. I mean, like they're just waiting to get off their work to just be like, yeah, I hate my job. My owner's an idiot. He's got dumb glasses. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're nice glasses, though. They're, right. yes. they're nice. Uh, so Brian, you mentioned this, and this is a question I've been wanting to ask. Um, so I consider you to be a journalist, and I feel. Like like the uh, definition of journalism and who journalists are has expanded, especially with social media and with the entry point. There's a lot of people who they liked writing and now they found out that they can contribute to uh websites like let's say eater and like that without a, a lot of experience without a journalist degree as well too so like the number of journalists or the type of journalists like has expanded um so i consider you to be a journalist and Thank what you. i appreciate what you're doing in the industry right now which we've really lost over the last couple of years you've been here for eight years at this point so yeah i think you've seen kind of a rise and fall of like you know craft cocktail bar or modern craft bartending in new orleans um i think that bartenders in the city um, are not being highlighted on an individual basis, and I think that's taken away from a lot of the ability for bartenders to uh, establish their own identities and to grow. Um, so could you speak a little bit to that?
2: Yeah, for sure, Steve. Uh, and thank you for bringing that up. I mean, it's something that I think it's really important, and it's a, a really a tenet of the show, as you know, having been on yourself, both you guys. Uh, you know, I we one of the things I like to talk about, uh, here is when you say somebody is a bartender. In New Orleans, you're a professional. It's a trade. It's a skill. Uh, you're a pro. And I mean, almost across the board. Now, certainly you can be working in particular establishments where the demand is not there to be super academic about it or, or know your history of rum and the differences between how types of rum or whatever, agave distillates for that matter, whatever, how it's made. But, you know, I think, for example, one of my theories with the term that I really do believe and have had this discussion with different people, We kind of poo-poo the term mixology or mixologist here because the the trade has really almost always been honored as a profession. And I think I get the idea where in some places where the bartender is seen as a kind of a grunt job or service industry job or what do you want to do with the rest of your life after you're a bartender Mm -hmm. job that mixology was maybe a term utilized to actually elevate the profession in places where it was not seen as being a trade or a profession. And I think here, you know, and not completely, okay, this is not a black and white issue to me at all, but I think here more than most places, it has been seen that way. And I think it's important to put that face on it and recognize the people then that are, you know, doing that job as pros and being able to say, you know, this person has a set of skills, has a set of experience. So the people that I talk to, um, the the level of knowledge they have. I mean, one of my favorite conversations was with – um we did a show on gender issues behind the bar a few months back, and one of the guests was a uh, Katie Dubois, who I know you both mm-hmm. know at Barrelproof. Sure. And you know Katie's a great bartender. She works at Barrelproof, which has 270 or something like that whiskeys. <laughs> uh, and you know Katie knows her whiskey, and the type of conversation that people will come in because she's a female and will immediately assume that she's just sort of a pretty face pouring whiskey in a whiskey bar is so disrespectful. And we had this conversation. I have a lot of respect for Katie on a lot of different levels. She's a pro. She knows her whiskey. And so being able to talk about that or have somebody like her on to let people know that you go into barrel proof and you order a whiskey or you ha- – let me put it this way. You go into barrel proof and you want to order a whiskey and there's 270 to choose from, Katie's a hell of a person to ask what you should get. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just important to, to get those points about people working in the service industry, not just bartenders, uh, that, that out there, putting a face to it. I think, as you said,
0: Steve. I think there's a level too, um, that I don't know that bartending is really, I mean, that people don't really care in New Orleans what your money making hustle is. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that it's that bartending is elevated in a certain way. I think it is that other professions aren't seen as being any better or worse. Exactly. That exactly. uh like people ask what do you do in in DC or New York or LA and you're like, "Oh, well, you know I'm I'm a I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a I, whatever it is that you do. That is the answer to that question." And in New Orleans, what do you do is like, "I'm a same season ticket holder." I do security for Crudevoo. I went to Jesuit. I, yeah, I went to Jesuit. Like what? Like your 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 extracurriculars, your hobbies, your the way that you interact with culture are arguably more important than what you do for money. And there are some people who are able to like. I think bartenders are kind of on the uh, have a, an elevated level because, if anything, because they have a job that many people ha- agree is kind of fun. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a lot of the reason I do it. I think a lot of the reason a lot of people are bartenders is because it's fun. And so people look at that as, as being both of those things. Mm-hmm. So that it's like, oh, not only are you making money, this is also fun hobby that you, you, you get to enjoy while you're at work. And it's not it's not always fun. You know, they are bad days as, as as for here, as much for anyone. <laughs> There's bad years. <laughs> right, yes, right, right. Yeah. yeah, if you're if you're bartending at a place where you just you don't like the place, so the, you don't like the guests, you don't like the management, you can you can have some really long nights at work.
2: Yeah. You know, you guys. I'm always I'm impressed though, and, and maybe I didn't say this uh, exactly. The knowledge level that so many bartenders have in town here of their trade, of what it is that they're applying of the alcohol, of the spirits, uh, is incredibly impressive to me because I think in certain scenes, yeah, you can, you know, if you go to San Francisco, you go to New York, Chicago, certainly you can find that there. But I think when you get to, and and certainly it's not across the board in New Orleans, but when I go to the certain places that I like, like here or, sylvain or i'm not whatever places if i i know the bartender is going to know what they're doing and what they're talking about for the most part and if i have a question the, the knowledge base um and just geeking on cocktails from an academic perspective it's there it's something i can have that conversation with whereas i think that in a lot of i think a lot of people maybe customers and patrons uh, anywhere don't actually understand that and i think that's just an important issue to, to bring to the floor yeah
1: I think um for me and just full disclosure for myself I I think that recognition is a big thing. We brought this up when we were talking to Jonathan and Basil in uh, our episode a couple weeks back. It is just, you know, we as bartenders are craving recognition. That's one of the things. I mean, like okay. the amount of like unpaid work that we have to do to get into that level of knowledge, um, you know, buying all the books, learning, reading, following blogs, uh buying products to test at home, you know. There's so much unpaid labor like that, that is put into it and so much. It, it is a labor of love for a lot of people starting off that, you know, it's, it's great. Like that first feeling when you first get published. I remember I, I owe a lot of my craft cocktail bartending career to Ann Barry. Um, when, when I first started out, she did a great job highlighting a lot of work that I did, uh, when I was doing pop-ups at my home. And then when I did, uh, my pop, pop shop pop ups with Jeffrey Wilson and Chris Hanna and company. Um, she, she followed me. She was a big fan of me. And, uh, it was a really good relationship where, like, she could write about me and it would be something she could, you know, feature in, like, her blog and, uh, on, and where you at in the gambit. And it also helped my career as well. Um, and I think there's a symbiotic relationship there that can exist for journalism and for food writing as well. Um, but I just don't see that happening right now. And I, I see it's like, it's almost like it's an umbrella right now. Like if journalism and press was like a rainfall right now, we've got like some people who are already seen as prominent bartenders in the community and they're the umbrella on top. And then there's all these bartenders underneath this umbrella who are not getting wet at all. They're not getting Mm -hmm. a sprinkle of rain or press or anything like that. And, uh, when it comes down to it, like, is that going to damage the future of this industry without having like, you know, exposure for like another generation of bartenders to come up? You know,
2: it, it's interesting, Steve, I, I mentioned having worked in the wine industry, uh, for a number of years in which I still do. Uh, and the, even in the, the restaurant industry, you see the, the sort of the face people of an institution and I'll, I'll give an example, I'm not, not necessarily by name, but so many of the wineries in Napa are, the story is now a dime a dozen of it's rich guy or rich gal, uh, heirs of somebody's money, former <laughs> athlete, whatever we're talking about, that opens up a winery. And everybody, I don't know if you guys know this name, there's a very famous uh, contract winemaker called Heidi Barrett. So that's Screaming Eagle. Okay. Okay, yeah, right. Towards, Some mm. of these so-called cult wines. And apparently I, I don't know Heidi at all. Apparently she's actually a very humble, very uh, professional person. Uh, but everybody and their mother comes in with millions of dollars Opens up a winery, ostentatious building in the middle of Napa, hires Heidi Barrett as the winemaker. Even though, and this is sort of my point here, and then and then, then they have this wonderful origin story about how they're so different. They're not different. They all a lot of these wines even I, I think taste the same now. Not just because Heidi Barrett's making them all; other people are making them. These hundred fifty dollars bottles of wine are kind of dime a dozen stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's just you know you're telling me how great you are because you used to play sports or you have a ton of money and you're the face of the winery, and you put Heidi Barrett's name on the label, and she's done a good job as the consulting winemaker. The man or woman who is actually working as the quote-unquote assistant winemaker is the person who's doing the day-to-day. And that person's not getting really a whole lot of credit, uh, you know, the people working in the tasting room, the cellar manager, vineyard manager, whatever we're talking about. And I see the same phenomenon here, what we're talking about with bartenders often in that situation, is it they are not the face of the institution, in. Many instances, I think we can name a few exceptions where they have put themselves in front of their own bars. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I think that that, that happens. And it's so common that the people really, you know, behind the lines are the ones that are putting the product together, contributing on an intellectual property level that people actually do not realize or do not see. And they're not getting that sort of recognition. And I think that's sort of what you're saying with bartenders too. There's, you, you have your sort of attache, right? Of your skill set of where you go and what you can make and what you bring to the table. I think people need to understand that too. It's not just you're making a drink to spec that the bar is telling you to make in a lot of places.
0: I think a lot there was a, a period of about maybe 7-8 years ago in New Orleans at least where there were a lot of people doing beverage writing and that that numbers contracted some and and similarly at the same time about 7 or 8 years ago there were not a lot of people who were really actively doing cocktails at least not at the level that uh there are now so if you that was the people that were doing the writing were very very hungry for content and so anything was a story any any new bar program was uh, like immediately written up in two or three different platforms and then since then there every restaurant has to have a cocktail program you can't if you open, they, and there were restaurants they' were like August for years never had a cocktail program now they 've got a cocktail list. It was like <laughs> it's just expected now, <laughs> and so there's a glut of potential content, but fewer and fewer people doing the writing, so it 's a lot harder to get people's attention to break into that, but at the same time. I think there's a, a sense of entitlement a lot of the time when when people talk about why aren't bartenders getting the recognition that they deserve. It's like, why do they necessarily deserve recognition? What is an individual bartender doing that is so different than what every other bartender in the cocktail world should be doing? If it is doing your job... And I look at other professions that I think are way more important. And bartending is not unimportant. It feels frivolous sometimes, but managing a bar. And that's what I mean by being a bartender is like managing the space in an active sense mm-hmm. is the, is attending to the bar itself, not just mixing drinks. It's, a, it's an important job. You can really be a pillar of the community if you're a good bartender, but there are so many other jobs that are way more important. And no one, no one is lining up to give out awards to really good teachers. You know, no, there are right. very few people uh, or police officers who aren't corrupt. <laughs> like, there are so many people that are doing way more important work. They get way less recognition. So when I hear bartenders say, oh, why am, why am I not getting the recognition I deserve? It's like, what have you really done to deserve being in the newspaper for making a drink?
1: Well, I I, I think my only thing is I would disagree with that slightly because with a lot of professions, there is a Belt and Tract where you have a salary, you have raises and things like that as well. Um, the value that we have as a bartender is very intrinsic, um, and it has to be established a little bit. So by getting that amount of recognition, you can start demanding more money for things like running a bar program, and it sets a standard in a community as well. I mean, New York and Chicago... Have that going for them as well. You have people who have developed their reputation through press and through working at various programs, and then when they go to run a new restaurant or they go to run like a uh uh, uh like a pardon me a group like Landed Sea or something like that, then they can demand a certain amount of money. And we're kind of getting into the slippery slope thing. I think Cole, like what you're saying, with a little bit like where it's like dime a dozen. A lot of people can do this. Why do they deserve this recognition? It's devaluing what we do as bartenders a little bit and it's the same thing in the kitchen as well too like if you're not recognized for the skill that you have and maybe it's a skill that's reproducible maybe it's something that a lot of other people can do but without that recognition maybe it's an of mystery maybe it's just like you know a little bit of fluff to go along with it like who you are what your personality is yeah anybody can do it and everything like that but when does it come to the fact where you can say like this is how much money a bartender should be making to run a program. I mean, cause right now that amount is $5 an hour plus the good shifts. And that's bullshit. That's a lot worse than a teacher. That's a lot worse than any police officer or anything like that as well. Um, that's, that's, I guess that's my two cents on the issue as well. <laughs> I mean, that's why we need recognition as bartenders. We need to be shown that we are a commodity inside of restaurants. And especially when you're talking about restaurants in this, in this city, especially where like, uh, everybody wants to have a cocktail program. People aren't willing to pay for that cocktail program. Although the return on beverage and a good beverage program is a lot better than the food. You will make your money in a restaurant off of the beverages much better than you will the food. Oh, yeah. yeah Always. That's very true. I mean, that, that cost center concept
2: of beverage program. You know, and I, Cole, I think you make a great point to it, and we both do. Everybody needs recognition for what it is when they do well. Now, I'm, I'm not the believer that everybody should get a trophy just for showing up <laughs> either. You know, there is some merit-based stuff here. So, you know, my point about the assistant winemaker was not to say that assistant winemaker should be given their name on the label next to Heidi Barrett's on the back of the Colt wine but there has to be some opportunity for that person, which they do right? you uh, I think we've seen a lot of people I know some people that have come through here at twelve mile limit. I look at a place like Bartani, people that have come through there and then gone on to do open their own place, uh you know take over a program at a restaurant, you know that kind of thing you and so there there that stuff needs to be there for people to have career advancement opportunities. I think, and when you're sort of a free agent, which in a lot of ways the service industry is here, that can be a little bit more difficult.
1: Right on. Well, uh we've gone a little bit long at this point, but <laughs> I'm sure we'll trim it down pretty well for you uh, for all our faithful listeners out there. Uh let's uh wrap up with parting shots uh real
0: quickly. Uh what you got, Cole? I think that part of my issue with the kind of recognition that people look for in bartending is that it t- it tends to reward some of some aspects that may or may not be the most important aspects of operating a bar some of our 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 best most treasured longest term employees here at 12 mile limit did not come in with a real solid foundation of spirit knowledge or cocktail knowledge they brought things like just a a sparkling personality or you know an ability to use (laughs) jujitsu to to kick people out of the bar (laughs) in tense situations or or just the 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 management of a bar space, the tending to a bar, is so much more than making a delicious drink. And that tends to be the only thing that people really write about when it comes to bartending is that, oh, look at this new cocktail. This is a cocktail. It's all about cocktails. And that's the only thing that people talk about when it comes to bar culture. And I think that I don't know that there's a better way. I don't know that there's a way that journalists can even identify. Because effective service, whether it's a waiter or a bartender... Your job is essentially to be as invisible as you can be. You don't want to, if you're, if you're seen as, if you're seen doing your job, you're essentially sort of doing it wrong. You wanna, you, you if you're doing your job well, nobody notices. People only notice when it goes wrong. So it's, it seems like it's kind of, I can't think of a way, a better way to reward people for the, the, what I truly value in a bartender, but I do think that we often, that, what we do, I mean, it's not, I mean, making delicious cocktails is, is important. I think that's a, a lot of the reason people come to 12 Mile Limits, because we have good drinks. But ultimately, people really come because they can have a good conversation with a bartender. That they know that the bartender is going to be looking after their interests, going to try to keep them safe, try to keep them from overindulging, try to keep them from being attacked or assaulted. And those are the kind of things that I think we should be trying to find a way to recognize and reward bartenders who do those things well.
1: Mm-hmm. Right on. Brian, how about some parting shots? And also, let us know where we can catch you outside of a round with Stephen Cole. Oh, thank you. I appreciate
2: that. Thanks, guys, for having me on. Uh, you know, one of the things I know I've said to you guys before, and I know to you, Steve, in particular, is uh, having worked in the wine business, if I can just simply add, I'm also the general manager of Ponch Train Vineyards, the local winery here across the lake. And the part of the customer service thing that I think plays into and and adding on to what Cole said about the, the environment that a bartender running a bar creates that people may not see, I always say that you can put when somebody walks into the tasting room at the winery or somebody walks into a bar, I think it's somewhat analogous, you can put people in three groups. One is that they want to talk about, in my case, wine. That's probably the smallest group, like geek out on wine. The next smallest group is that they actually don't want to talk at all. They're want they there on a first date, right, or something, you know, and they don't want to have any sort of interaction. That's when the invisible person behind the wine bar is incredibly important. And far and away, the largest group are the people that come in, and I like to say they like want to talk about their dog, which means they want to talk about their dog, they want to talk about the saints, they want to talk about their job, whatever we're talking about. Recognizing who those people are, in what group they are when they walk into your establishment, and then recognizing that they might move from one of those groups or all three to another during the experience is a really important thing. And I think some of the best bartenders that I see. Usually, when I go in, I want to interact with the bartender. I want to. I'm in the small group. I want to geek, but I also maybe want to talk about my dog. Rarely do <laughs> I go sit in that group where I don't want to talk to anybody. And that's a huge skill. And I think a lot of people, to me, recognizing that in a bartender, this, as you said, Cole, the space created is really important. And and kudos to those that do it well. Cool. And, uh, where, oh, where show. can I'm we sorry. catch you? Yeah. yeah the, sorry. The, <laughs> there's, there's that part too. Uh, yeah. So the, thank you. Uh, the, the radio show is on Thursdays from three to five PM, uh, on nine ninety AM here in New Orleans. Uh, the podcast is always edited, getting rid of the traffic and all the stuff that you don't need to hear uh, on Fridays by about midday on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn, also on our website, noladrinks.com. And I would encourage people also, if they would, to also visit me uh, and us at Noladrinks on the different social media platforms and let us know what you think about the show and what you'd like us to talk about, too.
1: Yeah, and especially if you want to come on the show as well, too. And if you're yeah. a bartender or a beverage or food professional in the city, uh, it's, it's a great platform to just be able to talk and it's a very free uh, thing. And you can definitely come on here on our show as well. Just let us know. I mean, uh, we're always looking for content. Uh, so I'll keep it short for the most part. My, my parting shots on everything like that. I think that we uh, touched on some very interesting issues today. Um, I, I think that like many things that we'll talk about on this show, it's about starting a conversation. And journalism to me is the beginning of a conversation um, it can be a great gateway it could be a great glimpse into things but it's always it's always going to be, just kind of a taste of something. I mean, you really have to go out there and dive in there and, like, get a really good sense of things. That's how you're going to learn who bartenders really are. That's really how you're going to learn what spaces are and the things that you really like. But having that that peek into something and having a good preview of things is very important, and I think it's something that's especially essential in a in a ever more competitive industry that we're seeing nowadays. It's like being able to uh, establish yourself and, you know, kind of rise above, like, you know, everything else. Um, so uh, we really can't do that without journalism. So it's very important. So uh, we want to thank Brian for coming on Thanks, the show. Uh, we're going to wrap up here. I'm Steve Yamada. I'm T. Cole Newton. And we'll catch you next week. Thanks, everybody.